Uh, but it is really great to be sharing the word with you today. And I know that we've prayed a couple of times already, but I would just like us to go into just another moment of prayer as we um, prepare our hearts to receive his word. Let us pray. Mm -hmm. Loving, gracious, almighty God and Father. God, we thank you so much for um, gathering us here, for placing on our hearts to come and meet. And even though we are separated by the fact that we are not in the same building together, but we ask that you, you unite our spirits, that you unite us together with your spirit, that as we come and hear your word, that you will um, just speak into our hearts. God, I love what was sung today in one of the praise songs that we sang this morning, Canvas and the Clay, that you are not finished with us yet. And so we do, we ask God that you prepare our hearts, that you make us into good soil to receive your word today, that we will, in our times of help me in my unbelief, that we will be able to taste and see that you are good. God, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, so doubt. Doubt, as one website puts it, almost seems like a bad word in the Christian circles. And doubt, according to the Cambridge Dictionary, is defined as not being certain about something, especially about how good or true it is. From the classical humanism perspective, doubt is an essential to life. Rene Descartes said, if you would be a real seeker after truth, it is necessary that at least once in your life, you doubt as far as possible all things. And some believe it, some believe it is not doubt that is evil, but instead it is a reaction to doubt. Some, for some doubt, doubt can spur us into new heights as we seek to overcome our doubts, while for others, it can create fear and immobilize us. But the Bible on the other hand says something quite different. James chapter one, verse six to eight says, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. And yet doubt is a reality we all face. Doubt has this interesting way of creeping into our thoughts and our emotions. And if goes unchecked, and wreak havoc on our lives and on our faith. I like the way this one biblical scholar and theologian puts it, Peter Entz. He says, as he talks about the progression of faith when it comes to doubt, he says, I've often gone from, I know what I believe, to I think I know. And then he continues on and says, then as bicycling down a steep hill with no brakes, it moves more quickly to, I think I thought I knew. I'm not sure anymore. I don't really know anymore. Honestly, I have no idea. Leave me alone. And the remedy to doubt is faith. And as Romans chapter 10 puts it, faith comes from hearing the word. The word of God testifies to God's goodness, his greatness. The word testifies to God's presence, to God's path, and to God's promise. It reminds us that we can have trust and faith in him. And I love the way Hudson Taylor puts it. He says, God is not looking for men of great faith. He's looking for common men to trust in his great faithfulness. We are starting a new sermon series, and the title for this sermon series is Help My Unbelief. And you may recognize this title to be the second half of a plea from a father whose child is possessed by an evil spirit 
The story is found in Mark chapter 9. But after a brief exchange of words with Jesus about this possessed child, the father turns to Jesus and he says, but if you can do anything, please take pity on us and help us. And Jesus responds by essentially saying, what do you mean if I can? Everything is possible for the one who believes. And at that, the father, recognizing that he does have faith, but also recognizing that he also has doubt, the father doesn't hide his doubt or become ashamed of it. He takes it to Jesus and he exclaims, I do believe, help my unbelief. And some translations say, I do believe, help me overcome my unbelief. And after hearing the father's plea, Jesus immediately speaks to the evil spirit and permanently delivers the child of the evil spirit. And I think many of us at one point or another in our lives, or maybe even right now, have been in that state of, I do believe, but help my unbelief. As followers of Christ, we do trust that God is with us, that God is taking care of us and directing our lives and our journey. But there are times and circumstances Crises of belief moments that cause us to become disoriented in our faith, that cause us to fear, to question, and doubt God's presence. Is God really here with me? Can I trust that God is really who he says he is? The challenges and struggles and pain and suffering that cause us to question and doubt God's path, God's plan, finding ourselves asking, is this what life is all about? Is this the path that God has given me? Didn't he tell me to do this? Then where is he? In crisis of belief, challenges, and struggles that cause us to question and doubt God's promise. Over the next three weeks in our sermon series, Help My Unbelief, we are going to be looking at a story that reveals to us and reminds us of God's presence, God's path, and God's promise. And the story that we will be reviewing is not from the Bible. It is not... Um, Sorry, it is, it is from the Bible, but it is not from the story that we just read from Mark chapter 9, but it is a story that is rather familiar. It is the Exodus story. Okay, so for some of us, the Exodus story is so familiar. It is like the events posters hanging in the walls of the high schools that have become all but wall art, something nice to look at, maybe even entertaining, but the message that it carries is no longer of interest. The message it carries is all but lost. And this reminds me of a story of um, a wife who did an experiment. And this experiment has to do with her husband and their recycling blue bin. And some of you may know where I'm going with this. Long story short, this said blue bin sat in the middle of their entrance hallway all week long until she couldn't stand it anymore. And she finally confronted him, asking him why he hadn't moved the blue bin from the middle of the hallway. And to her surprise, he didn't apologize, nor did he start, he didn't start yelling. He didn't start yelling and saying, well, why didn't you move it? But to her surprise, he genuinely asked her, what blue bin? Um, at least two times a day, he passed by the blue bin. He walked over it. He walked over it. He walked around it. He may have even banged his shin on it a couple of times, and yet he didn't see it. He didn't, it didn't register in his brain. He was unfazed by it, not impacted at all. And so I think for some of us, the Exodus story, not the book of Exodus, but the Exodus story has either become the wall art, something nice to look at, even entertaining, but the message has been lost, or it has become the blue bin in our lives, something we come across, but it leaves us unfazed 
and not impacted at all. But I hope that you will approach this sermon series with fresh eyes. I hope that you will approach this Exodus story as if you've never heard about it before, soaking in the sights, the sounds, the emotions, and being in wonder and awe again. Why? Because the Exodus story is our story. The Exodus story is our story from the Israelites being delivered from their slave drivers to their actually, actual journey through the wilderness to their final destination, the promised land. Their story is our story. And over the next three weeks, we will not be taking the scenic route. Unfortunately, we don't have enough time. We will not be taking the scenic route and going through all the details, although there's so much that we could go through we will be taking a panoramic shot. And even this panoramic shot, not being able to take in everything that we know is there, but we will be focusing on the big picture of three main point parts of the Exodus story. We will be looking at God's presence, God's past, and lastly, God's promise. Before we, though, before we enter into this Exodus story, just so that no one is left behind, I just want to take us back, all the way back to take a quick glance to see how we got to where we are picking up today. Okay, so in the beginning, yes, I did say we're going to go all the way back. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created all that was in the earth, on the earth, and around the earth. And on the sixth day, God created man and woman. In his image, he created them. And then one day, the man and the woman, they decide to rebel against God, and they eat from the tree of the one tree that is off limits. And through this one act, sin and death enter the world, causing man and woman to be separated from God. When we, as we read, we read generation after generations pay for the consequences of being separated from God. But although God could no longer dwell with his people, God used different people throughout history to remind them that he was still with them. And one of these people is Abram. And God speaks to Abram saying in Genesis chapter 17, verse five to eight. And I hope you, that you remember this, this verse because we will be alluding to it a couple more times in this sermon. But uh, Genesis chapter 17, it says, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make you make nations of you. The kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your disciples after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. And so in order for Abraham to become the father of many nations, God promises Abraham a son. And out of desperation, Abraham takes matters into his own hands he has a son Ishmael with his servant Hagar. And then at least at, and then at 100 years old with his wife Sarah, they have a son Isaac, and it is through Isaac's line that the promise continues. So Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob, and although Esau is the one that is in line to carry out the promise of God, Esau actually sells off his birthright for a bowl of stew to Jacob, and then Jacob becomes the one to carry on the promise. Jacob, whose name gets changed to Israel and becomes the nation of Israel, has 12 sons, but he has one favorite son, Joseph. And in a jealous fit, Joseph's 10 older brothers sell him off into slavery, and Joseph ends up in Egypt. 
after facing numerous challenges and injustices over the course of time, Joseph becomes the second in command in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And here he leads the people of Egypt and its surrounding nations through a seven-year famine. It just so happens that Jacob's family, which includes Joseph's brothers, are suffering from the same famine. And hearing that there is food in Egypt, Jacob sends his son to Egypt. Here in Egypt, there's a great family reunion, a great story of redemption. And it is at this point that Joseph invites all of Israel, all of Jacob's family, all of Israel to go to Egypt. And as Israelites' history continues, the Israelites are blessed by God and grow in number. And if you recall from Genesis chapter 17 passage that we read just earlier, that is part of the promise that God made to Abraham, that they would grow and increase in number. And as time passes, that generation of Joseph and his brothers, including the Pharaoh, pass away. And the memory of all that Joseph did to save Egypt fades away as well. Meanwhile, there's a new Pharaoh in power, and he is threatened by the sheer number of Israelites and the power that they have as a nation and devises a plan to oppress them and make them slaves. In Exodus chapter one, verse 11 to 14, it tells us, so they put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor and they build Pithom and Ramesses store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor to, in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in their fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. In spite of the brutal, crushing labor, in spite of the Egyptians' merciless, ruthless treatment of the Israelites, the Israelites continue to increase in number. And although it doesn't seem like it, God is with them. God is watching over them. God is blessing them with numbers. And in the midst of all the suffering, God's plan to save his people from slavery is put into motion and Moses is born. During a time when all the baby boys were being killed off from the bravery of, and compassion of five incredible women, two midwives, Shifra and Pua, Moses' mom, Moses' sister, Miriam, and the Pharaoh's daughter, Moses is saved. And Moses grows up in the courts of the Pharaoh that wanted to have him killed, Moses grows up in the Egyptian courts, adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter. But after murdering an Egyptian slave driver, he is forced to flee into the wilderness. Here in the wilderness, Moses is no longer the prince of Egypt. He is just a lowly shepherd. Egyptians despised shepherds. And to make it worse, he wasn't even the owner of the flock. Here in the wilderness, Moses marries Zipporah, here in the wilderness, Moses meets God. For today, we are not going to apply the themes of this passage to our life. We are not going to dissect the Israelites' suffering and oppression or Moses' insecurities or the Israelites' fear. We are not going to try to find my place in this story. Today, we are going to put the limelight on God. We are going to focus all of our attention on him. And while the title of the sermon series is help my unbelief. Today's sermon title is Taste and See the Lord is Good. So that when we cry out and plead, help my unbelief, when we question, God, do you really exist? When we doubt God's faithfulness and ask, God, are you really with me? 
when we are confused and disoriented in God's goodness, we can look to this passage and be reminded of God's goodness, his great greatness. We're able to taste and see the Lord is good. As we re read today's scripture passage together, I encourage you to focus on God. If you are one who writes in your Bibles or take notes, underline, circle, highlight, make note of the actions and words of God. And so let us read together the scripture passage for today. It is taken from Exodus chapter three, verses one to 15, and then verse 20. And so here we go. Exodus chapter three, verses one to 15 and verse 20. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When, Mo when the Lord saw that Moses had gone over to look, God called to him from the, within the bush, Moses, Moses, and Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said, take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard their crying out of their uh, out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you've brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, your God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And then verse 20, it says, so I stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that will perform will that I will perform among them after that he will go he will let you go and so i love this passage and i've actually been really meditating on this passage for over a year now just recognizing what this passage truly means to me what this exodus story truly means and so i hope that you will feast on this message i hope you will chew it over i hope that you will absorb it to the core of your being that you will take it all in and you will see the Lord is good. And as we go through this Exodus passage, chapter three, verses one to 15 and verse 20, there are four things 
we see about God that remind us that the Lord is good. In each of these four things, luckily, they start with the letter I. And so the first thing that we can see about God is that God is with us. Number one is God is Emmanuel. Um, and we're going to go, actually, we're going to go back a little bit outside of the scripture passage that we read. Um, we're going to go back to Exodus chapter two for a moment, that while the Israelites are suffering at the hands of the slave divers, we are told that their numbers continue to increase. And even though it seems like God is missing from their lives, even though they are suffering and it seems like God has forgotten about them, in actuality, God is with them, fulfilling faithfully his promise to them. And we're going to talk more about this in the final week of this sermon series when we talk about the promise. But I want you to remember God's promise. God's promise was not to have them live in the lap of luxury. God's promise wasn't to have them live their best life now. God's promise to Abraham was that God would give Abraham many descendants, that God would make him into a great nation, and that God would give them the land that is flowing with milk and honey. God is Emmanuel. God is with them. He never left them, nor did he forsake them. And we can see this as the Israelites continue to grow in number. And so as we continue, God himself then now in another um, of the two of the eyes that we are going to be talking about as we see how great God is, we can see that God himself reminds us that he is Emmanuel. As you look into uh, verse seven, it says, the Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them out of the land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here, as we see that God is with us, we see that God is not blind. We see that God is not deaf. And that God is not unmoved to suffering the oppression of God's chosen people, the Israelites, but what they are facing. God tells Moses that he has seen the misery, that he has heard the crying, and that he is concerned about their suffering. And not only that, he has already come down to rescue them. God is active, God is engaged, and God is present. God is Emmanuel. And as we continue to see that God is Emmanuel, we will look at verse 11. When Moses is protesting to God that God has the wrong guy, he says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And I love this part. Watch this. God doesn't reassure Moses that Moses has what it takes, right? Like oftentimes I think when somebody's feeling down about themselves, when somebody is like, um, hard on themselves and just having a really tough time because they haven't accepted who they are. They haven't ac accepted their identity in Christ. We try to reassure them that, no, 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 you've got what it takes, right? That that's, that's our, well, I don't know. That's my default thing to try to convince people that they've got what it takes, but God doesn't do this with Moses. God doesn't give Moses a pep talk. He doesn't say you can do it if you put your mind to it, which is the biggest lie that you can actually believe in. But God doesn't do that. And why? Why doesn't God give Moses a pep talk? Because God, because Moses truly knows that he doesn't have what it takes. Moses isn't just saying this out of modesty. Moses knows who he is. But what does God say instead? God says, I have something better for you. 
God says in verse 12, I will be with you. God tells Moses, you are not, you alone are not enough. You alone are not enough, but I am with you. My presence, which includes my power, will be with you. God is Emmanuel. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the same is for us as well. As believers and followers of Christ, in your time of help, my unbelief, remember God is Emmanuel. God is with us. And this Emmanuel God is faithful to his promise that he made to you, which we will talk more about, sadly, in a couple of weeks in week three. But in your moment of help, my unbelief, when life is challenging and you are suffering, you're being mistreated, whether at work or at home or at school, remember, God sees his people. And you put your name in there. God sees your misery. God hears you. God hears your cries. In a season of help my unbelief, God is concerned about your suffering. He has come down and he has rescued you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We know that passage, John 3, 16. Taste and see the Lord is good. God is Emmanuel. God is with us. Next, from today's passage, I'm going to put, I'm going to put the next two eyes together. Um, we taste, we can taste and see the Lord is good from Exodus chapter three um, passage. And we see that God initiates a relationship with us and God invites us into his plan. So um, number, the next one is God initiates a relationship and God invites us into his plan. And so for some of us, we've heard this in sermons past. And so we might be tempted here to tune out, but let it not be the wall art. Let it not be the blue bin. Let us not pass by it so quickly. There is beauty here. Moses is going about his day like any other day. Exodus chapter three, verse one tells us, now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And as he is tending the sheep, Moses sees a burning bush in the wilderness. Now the burning bush in the wilderness might not be something that is spectacular, but a burning bush that is not being consumed is. And furthermore, this spectacular burning bush talks. It calls out to Moses, the spectacular burning bush calls out and addresses Moses by name. And it is here that God invites Moses into his plan. Okay, so usually sermons on this passage focus on the burning bush or focuses on the plan. But what I want to direct your attention to is where Moses is. In verse one, we read that Moses is on the far side of the wilderness. And the far side of the wilderness is not just talking about Moses's physical location, but I think it is also referring to Moses's spiritual state as well as his place in society. He is on the far side of the wilderness. And not only is Moses physically and literally on the far side of the wilderness, but Moses is spiritually far from God. But amazingly as it is, Moses, uh, God in the form of Mount Horeb, the mountain of God is right beside Moses. And I love that. Anyways, we can't go into any more of that. Um, but maybe that's something that you can reflect on on your own. But Moses is spiritually far from God. And socially, in the eyes of the world, he is a lowly shepherd tending to someone else's flock. And to add insult to injury, he is also a murderer. 
And the beauty in this is, in spite of where Moses is spiritually, in spite of what Moses appears to be in the eyes of the world, a social pariah, in spite of Moses's past, God chooses Moses. God goes to him in the form of a spectacular burning bush and initiates a relationship with him. And God invites Moses, this social pariah, this murderer, into his plan. Brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter where your heart is, even in your state of help my unbelief, no matter what society thinks of you, no matter what your coworkers or your fellow students or the people around you think about you, no matter what has happened in your past, God chooses to have a relationship with you. He wants to be in a relationship with you. God will do whatever it takes to get your attention, even if it means setting something on fire in your life. And God invites you to be part of his plan. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And then what does God, Jesus, say here? He says, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Taste and see the Lord is good. God initiates a relationship with you. God invites you to be part of his plan. And so, so far, when we are crying out to God, God, help my unbelief. We can be assured that God is Emmanuel, that God is with us. We can be certain that he is calling out to you, initiating a relationship with you and inviting you into his plan of redemption. And lastly, the last I, where we can taste and see that the Lord is good, is found that he is the holy and powerful I am. Over the years, I've listened to many sermons trying to understand what does this actually mean? What does God mean by I am who I am? How do I define God? But really, this is the reason why we read the Bible. That is what we read the Bible for, where the word of God tells us, the word of God testifies to the goodness of God, to his love, to his mercy, to his grace, to his faithfulness, to his justice, to his truth, to recognize from the Bible that God is bigger than the words can explain, that God is bigger than what our minds can comprehend. And it takes the whole Bible, reading it over and over again, to even catch a glimpse of who God is. But we do get a glimpse of who God is in this Exodus story, that he is holy, that he is set apart from any God, that he is powerful as he destroys Egyptian God after Egyptian God. Remember, Exodus chapter 3, verse 20 tells us, so I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. We see God do this wonder after wonder, plague after plague. And you can read about the 10 plagues in, in Exodus chapters 7 to 12. But each plague is like a double-edged sword. On one side, the plagues sh are showing that the Israelites, um, showing the Israelites, who God is, that he is the I am. The faithful God of their fathers is alive, powerful, and worthy of their worship. That there is no other God like I am. There is no greater God than Israel's God that they can trust and follow him. And on the other side, each plague devastated the Egyptian economy, leadership, infrastructure, and people. 
So when God turned the river to blood or destroyed the crop with locusts, the truth was, was, was revealed about the false nature of the powerless Egyptian gods, and that God was the one true I am who I am God. And Jesus continues this statement in the New Testament, and he spells out for us a little bit more of who he is. Jesus reveals to us, I'm the bread of life. He is what sustains us and gives us food to eat. I'm the light of the world that when we're groping around in the darkness, we can actually see. He is the door. He is the good shepherd that leads us and guides us. He is the resurrection and the life. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And he is the vine. Jesus is the Lord and Savior. Brothers and sisters in Christ, when we are crying out to God, help my unbelief. When the gods of our life, security, control, money, power, relationships, you fill in the blanks, are revealed for what they are, powerless, fake gods. Let us remember and let us taste and see God is the great, powerful, worthy I am. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I hope that when you are going through moments and seasons of crisis of belief, of hardship, challenges, suffering, pain, confusion, and doubt, when the world that you know it is falling to pieces around you, when you feel mistreated, lost, hurt, alone, misguided, that you remember what we have tasted and seen today, that God is the God, the only God, the holy, powerful I am, who sees, who hears, who is concerned with, and who has come down to us as God Emmanuel to rescue us. And he chooses us and initiates a relationship with us, with we, each one of you, invites us into his great call, into his plan of redemption. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father God, oftentimes we can read the Bible and just feel like, oh, I've already read this story. And oftentimes we can feel like we're just going over the motions of reading your word. But I ask, Heavenly Father God, that it doesn't become the wall art, that it doesn't become the blue bins, but that we can see you alive and present in our life, that you are leading and guiding us. God, help us to remember that you are the true great I am, that you are God, that we can taste and see how good and great you are. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.